The scripture for this morning is from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 16. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except for perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say this, it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman, woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separated, separates, let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, so glad to be with you here, downtown congregation. Uh, my name is Oscar. Um, I speak a little Spanish. So, John, can you uh, help out? Translated. Um, so good to be with you. Uh, this morning we are continuing our preaching series through 1 Corinthians, and uh, it's Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, and we find ourselves in this chapter, chapter 7, verses 1 through 16, uh, where Paul gives specific principles on marriage, and he actually makes a connection with um, sex and holiness. Uh, what we're going to learn from this passage is that Paul actually gives an explanation uh, for the need for marital sex. He's going to give an endorsement for self, to be self-control, and he's going to give an encouragement for marital longevity. Uh, three particular things we're going to see this morning from this passage. Paul explains the need for marital sex. He's going to endorse the need to be self-control, and he's going to encourage marital longevity. I've entitled this sermon, Sex and Holiness. And the main idea of this passage, what we're going to see is that Paul um, gives the Corinthians a clear perspective on the beautiful dance between sex and holiness. Now, I know that seems like a paradox, but there is a connection here. And uh, let me just sort of describe to you uh, what I mean uh, by reading a quote from Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. And he, as he's describing some of the benefits of marriage, he lists a few things that are really important here. He says this, 
romance, sex, laughter, and plain fun are the byproducts of this process of sanctification, refinement, glorification. These things are important, but they can't keep the marriage going through years and years of ordinary life. What keeps the marriage going is your commitment to your spouse's holiness. You're committed to his or her beauty. You're committed to his greatness and perfection. You're committed to her honesty and passion for the things of God. That's your job as a spouse. Any lesser goal than that, any smaller purpose, and you're just plain being married. He's making the connection that marriage is for the purpose of you as a spouse to sanctify your spouse, to bring them closer toward holiness. That's the purpose of marriage. Now, let me tell you why we need to listen to a message like this or a passage like this. Uh, we need to listen to a message like this because it's often um, in the church context, we, we don't really talk about sex. We even um, you know, sort of blush when we even use the word sex. And even this past week or as I, as I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking, man, I'm going to have to use the word sex a lot in this sermon. And, um, and yeah, we, we, we kind of chuckle and we're, you know, we're, we're laugh, we laugh a little bit about it. Um, but we need, this, we need this passage because when we, when we think about sex, um, we have a lot of connotations, worldly connotations that are associated by um, and with the word sex. But I want us to recognize that we need this passage because when we oftentimes, when we think about the word sex, uh, we tend to feel guilty. We tend to feel ashamed. And even in the context of church, um, we tend to feel even more shame if we've ever disclosed the abuse that perhaps we've faced with sex or the encounters that we've had um, that weren't necessarily godly or close to holiness in that way. So we need a passage that speaks clearly about the subject of sex. Now, there's clearly a lot of passages in the Bible that speak about sex, this isn't going to give us the full counsel that we ought to understand about sex, but certainly Paul is going to talk about it. And what I love about this passage is that he's not going to give some smug, simplistic answers related to sex. Paul is going to give some, he's going to sympathize with them as individuals, and he's going to clearly speak about marital sex and the purpose for, and the need for self-control and the need for longevity in marriage so that there could be holiness as a result of that. So this morning, what we're going to see here again is we're going to see that sex is good in marriage, verses 1 through 5. Verses 6 through 9, self-control is required for all. And in verses 10 to 16, steadfastness in marriage produces holiness. Having said that, let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you now. And we're thankful, Lord, that you are the good God who gives us great gifts. And in particular, Lord, we're thankful that as, as made, uh, be, being made with, as sexual beings, Lord, we are thankful that you address our deepest longings. And even here in this passage, Lord, we're asking that you, by your spirit, would reveal, your, reveal yourself that we might see 
who you are, that we might respond as we are in order that we might become the church for this world, a people that belong to you, a people holy, a royal priesthood. And we're thankful, Lord, that you've given us new identity. So redeem that which, was, been, which, ha, that which has been broken. Enable us to see the goodness of Christ in this passage. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now let me just do some exegetical framing as to why Paul would address this particular principle on marriage and on sex. It has something to do with what he says there in verses 1 and 2, right? Did you see the, the, the context there in verses 1 and 2? He's talking about sexual relations in verse 1, and he talks about sexual immorality in verse 2. How did Paul get to this point here? Well, you have to look back at the beginning of chapter 5 in verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1 is the first place where we see this phrase, sexual immorality. Look at chapter 5, verse uh, 1. It says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Here, Paul begins to address the particular situation in Corinth, that there was sexual immorality. And as the church saw this happening, they were content to let it dwell within the context of the church. Or look at verse 11 of chapter 5. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, rival, or drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now Paul is saying, listen, sexual immorality certainly is bad. But there's also a myriad of other things too that, that disqualify or um, sort of um, not allow the Holy Spirit to actually flow in the presence of the, of the church. Then he continues on in chapter 6, verse 13. He says this, Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Here now, kind of, Paul sort of associates this idea that your body the body that you have here physically, the body actually belongs to the Lord. He's now giving us a new identity, a placement into who we, whose we are. We're the Lord's. And then at the end of chapter 6 and verse 18, he says this. He gives one clear command, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Here Paul clearly gives a specific command about fleeing from sexual morality. But then notice how the passage ends here in verse 19 and verse 20 of chapter 6. Again, we notice, if you, weren't, if you weren't here last week, Pastor John spoke on this passage, but notice how he ends here in verses 19 to 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So Paul gives them an answer to the fact that their body is actually the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit actually indwells the Christian's life. And because the temple, because they are the temple, they are to flee from sexual immorality. That's the context that we find ourselves here. So if you think about that, uh, if the body 
has the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit within them, perhaps the married couple might say, it's a little awkward to think about sex. I mean, the te- our bodies are holy. Our bodies belong to God. Shouldn't we refrain from having sexual relations with each other as a married couple? So doctrinally, they were trying to figure this out. The Spirit dwells with me, and in the privacy of the confines of my own bedroom, isn't that awkward? But also culturally, there was a cultural dynamic too that perhaps the Corinthian Christians were becoming to understand. You see, ancient Greek philosophers viewed the Spirit um, as something that was extremely noble, but on the converse, they viewed the body as something that was extremely evil. And so essentially, chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, Paul corrects that. And he says, no, the body, your body is holy. And so Paul wants to give some clear explanations for the need for marital sex. And that's what we're going to see there in verse five, uh, verses 1 through 5. He's going to explain here in verses 1 through 5 and this first point, He's going to explain that sex is good in marriage, and in fact, it is necessary for those who are married to have sexual relations, active sexual relations, in order to fight against the schemes of Satan. And notice what he does there in verse 1 of chapter um, 7. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, he's now going to begin to address their particular questions. And this particular question is something related to how a married couple was to maintain their relationship. And the question that they ask is, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? So Paul here, he begins to to answer the question of the what of marriage. What are the physical parameters in marriage? What are the boundaries of the physical relationships within the confines of marriage? What can I do? What can I do? How often? Frequent? Things like that. But again, notice how he um, attacks this question. He says in verse 2, But because of the temptation of sexual morality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. Verse 2 tells us that they ought to have a spouse and they ought to have sex within the confines of marriage to combat against this temptation of sexual immorality. Paul looks and he says, clearly we're sexual beings. Clearly we're made in that way. We have sexual organs. It's a natural feeling and reality of who we are as humans. And he says, then it's right then for you as a man to have a wife. And it's right for you as a woman to rightly have one husband in this way, in verse 2. But then notice how he continues in verses 3 to 4. He basically associates the body that belongs to God, back into the end of chapter 6, that body that belongs to God and where the spirit dwells, verses 3 to 4, he's now going to clarify and he's going to say, that body belongs to your spouse. And so he says there in verse 3, the husband should, not, should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. I mean, this is something that is absolutely scandalous at this point. Because again, in Greek culture, the woman was, she didn't really have any belonging. 
And now here in verses three to four, Paul is clarifying, he's saying, you, they, each body belongs to each other. You all have a common baseline of belonging in this marriage relationship. So he says there in verse three and four, the body, your body is your spouse's body. It's yours. Enjoy it. Live and enjoy. Be free and be intoxicated with each other. Have sex as a married couple. Of course you ought to have sex. Uh, perhaps he's looking and perhaps doing a devotional in Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 and 20. Paul, he was reading this and listen to what it says. He says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with the forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? You see, the Bible makes it very clear that in the confines of the context of marriage, it's wonderful to enjoy. It is good. Be intoxicated with each other in that way. The Bible calls for the spouse to be unashamedly intoxicated with her husband and with the spouse. Well, if there's one thing that I love doing, it's embracing my wife, Megan. And um, I've been married. We will celebrate 22 years of marriage next month. Um, so it's, um, we thank God. We, we got married when we were 20 years old. We were young, we were, um, we were immature in a lot of ways. We had blissful, blissful love. Um, but one of the things that I really enjoy um, in terms of um, showing my children and trying to show my children that I absolutely love her, oftentimes when, when we're making food, dinner, um, you know, we're cutting, I'm cutting on one counter, she's cutting on another counter, and we just, I turn around and I just hug her, and then I start kissing her. And Inevitably, my boys who are in the living room will look, and they'll start giggling, and then they'll come, and then they'll want to just get in between us, and they want to join the love and be in the love. Well, that's the beauty of what marriage is about. Um, it's about just enjoying the spouse, being utterly intoxicated with each other, and letting that intoxication fill and permeate the house. Love. And again, look at the way he concludes this section related to this marital love. In beginning in verse 5, he says that, that we ought to, um, that abstinence and refraining from sex, it must be a mutual consent. That, that, that is that both of you guys have to agree that you should refrain from sex. And notice the exception there that he gives in verse 5, of verse, um, verse five that it's for prayer, for a short time, for prayer. He says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Again, he now recognizes that you are, though you can enjoy the benefits of marriage and having sex, uh, he now, at the, end of chapter, at the end of verse five, he realizes that, you're, that we're merely human, and being deprived of an act. Satan has the ability to creep in and to tempt us 
at that moment. Satan is like this one who is battling against the saints of Christ. We know that Satan is, is, is a thief. Jesus alludes to that in John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Then Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. What we ought to see here in verse 5 is that Satan hates your marriage. Satan hates marriages. Satan is actively seeking to steal, to kill, and to destroy this marriage. And Paul knows that here in verse 5. He says it's going to be destroyed. And many marriages have been destroyed because of sexual immorality. I mean, that's the connection here. Sex can lead towards holiness. Sex in marriage can lead for the spouse to continue to grow in holiness. But the converse is true as well. In marriage, the absence of it can lead to being stolen, being sapped, being taken away from the presence of who Christ is. Now, if you're married, I want to say this, as Paul says here, enjoy the benefit, be intoxicated with your spouse. Enjoy. Engage actively with each other physically. About 17 years ago, I had the awareness to realize that if I was going to mature in my faith in Christ, I had to deal with my addiction to porn. I had to deal with it. And I wasn't going to get anywhere as a husband, as a man, with that addiction. And I had to confess my sin. And I approached the elders. I talked to John. talked to Pastor Dave and Pastor Dave Kamara. And I said, I got to fight this, and I can't fight this, and I can't overcome this. And they, the three of them, met with Megan and I. And there wasn't a dry eyed in the meeting. And they said, Oscar, you can. You belong to God. And you are to lead your wife. Lead your wife. And you have the spirit in you to contend for the faith. Many of us need to get to a point where we acknowledge that sexual immorality has been essentially driving us, driving you away from the joy of what God created you to be as an individual and in the confines of marriage. Paul says, take care. Satan will steal, kill, and destroy. Enjoy each other. Get your life, get your world in order. Get your head on straight. Meaning, recognize that your body belongs to God. Not, it's not yours. And if you're married, your body belongs to your spouse. And give your spouse all of who you are. So when they're on business trips, 
you give yourself all to who you are and you refrain and you hold out and you maintain your purity in Christ. Paul gives in verses one through five, Paul shares and he explains the need for marital sex. And he says that sex is good in marriage and it is necessary in order to fight against the schemes of the enemy. Secondly, in verses six through nine, Paul endorses, he endorses the reality of being self-control, the need to be self-controlled. In verses six through nine, notice what he says in verse six. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to, ref- to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, he's going to allude to the idea of needing to maintain self-control in this section. He's going to call them to actually maintain self-control. And he's going to call them in this section to say, listen, I need you to understand that what I am saying, though Jesus didn't speak about it, I am saying this. That's what he he means there in verse 6. Now is a concession, not a command. He's alluding to the fact that it wasn't Jesus never really mentioned this, but what I am saying ought to be understood as scripture and authoritatively. And he's going to continue on that in verses 10 and 11. We'll notice that in the next section. But he wants them in verse 7, I wish that all were as I am. He wants them to be single. Here's Paul, a single man who's given himself, his whole life, his whole endeavor is essentially following Jesus and focusing on the ministry. He wants everyone to say, I want you to live missionally to the fullest extent, just as I am. As a single individual, you can do that. You can give yourself to the ministry, to the mission. But how do we do this? Well, he continues to answer that question, doesn't he? He says, some of us have particular gifts, a gift to be of one kind, but each has his own gift, he says in verse 7, from God, one of one kind and one of another. There it is. It's a gift. Singleness is a gift. And he says, I know I would love for you to be singular-minded in terms of all that is surrounding about the mission of God. And he'll continue here in the end of chapter 7. You'll see this, but he'll begin to say, the reason why you don't want to marry is because you just have the realities and the worries of having children, responsibilities of paying bills and all these things. But he says it's a gift. But in this section, he's endorsing the need to be self-controlled, as he says there in verse 9. But if anyone, but if, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. He's calling them to be self-control. And in verse 9, again, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, this section here at the end of verse 9, Paul recognizes that uh, within who we are as humans, there, are, there is deep passion. The word passion means to burn, 
It has this sort of aching reality of burning like coals that sort of set something on fire. That, that's sexual desires. Those are sexual realities that are, that are within the confines of each person. And he says, you can maintain celibacy if God's given you that gift. But if you can't, to the unmarried, verse 8, to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single. But if you can't, then to marry, verse 9. Paul, in this section, he endorses the key thing, which is self-control. He wants them to maintain the reality of being self-controlled, to recognize that they are to flee from sexual immorality. They are to recognize that they belong to God. Their bodies belong to God. And so he's calling them, to, he's giving this endorsement. Then the last section here in verses 10 to 16, Paul encourages um, them toward marital longevity. And I want to focus some of our time here as we conclude. I want us to look at this last section in verses 10 to 16. Uh, because what he's calling them to do is he's calling them to have longevity in their marriage because there's a wonderful byproduct that happens as you're married. Holiness, sanctification happens. He says to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Again, now he's, when he says not I, but the Lord, he's saying the Lord actually said this thing. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. He's actually calling them to stay, to endure, to have longevity in their marriage. Now, I I know this passage here, uh, for many of us who've been affected by divorce, this is is getting personal. And... um, there's men, many situations because of abuse, uh, because of infidelity, of reasons why uh, divorce is perhaps necessary. But Paul wants to just be utterly clear as to giving some clear understandings. Again, he doesn't want to give us simplistic answers. He wants to be fully clear on this related to divorce. And then in verse 12, he says, to the rest, I say... I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she should not, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So he's saying, listen, I know that in some marriages it's, it's difficult. Uh, the person doesn't believe in the same doctrine, doesn't have the same faith as you do. But if you consent, if you agree that you ought to maintain this marriage, then keep on doing it. Paul wants to say that longevity in marriage is a good thing. And the byproduct of that longevity is holiness. Where do I get that? Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. I mean, even in, the, in a marriage where someone is an unbeliever and someone is a believer, 
The children are made holy. That is that they have the capacity to, they have the access of being known by God because of that believing spouse in that household. I mean, that's God's gift, that God can actually bring about transformation and salvation in this way. You know, I I didn't necessarily grow up in a household that was um, whole, healthy. Uh, My parents, we were an immigrant family. We we came to the state. I came to the States when I was four years old. My parents migrated um, in 1980. And uh, my dad uh, worked really hard. He, he worked two jobs in order to sustain our household. He struggled to maintain, to be a leader, a godly husband. Oftentimes because of the stress that was placed upon him to pay bills, uh, he gave himself to addictions, to alcoholism. My dad was abusive to us as, as children. He was abusive to my mom. And my mom was a prayer warrior. Every night, I remember my mom would gather the four boys, and in Spanish, we would pray the Lord's Prayer in Spanish every night. My mom prayed for the bo- her boys. Though our family was broken, I knew that God was doing something in my family. I came to faith when I was 15 years old, and in large part is because my mom prayed. My mom believed in the promises of God. My mom knew that if she maintained stability out of a chaotic home, perhaps God might reach them, their lives. That's what we see in this passage, isn't it? Here Paul is saying, listen, there is yet still stability in that home. And some of you here as well have experienced that same sort of reality. Paul wants to make it very clear. And, he, and what's the, be- the beautiful thing about this is that Paul is speaking to people that weren't perfect, people that had this chaotic kind of household. Paul is speaking to that kind of life, and he's saying, don't leave the marriage just because it's hard. Maintain it. Have longevity in marriage. Hold on. Perhaps there might be the byproduct of holiness in children. I remember as a, as a child, this might be perhaps too personal, but I, I, I wondered at times, I asked my mom, I said, Mom, why did you marry him? Why would you stay with him? Why? I, I can't answer what would happen if my parents divorced. I don't know. Perhaps some of you have wondered that. Perhaps some of you know the reality of a broken home, of abuse. Well, this passage here this morning is calling us to recognize that holiness, God wants us to walk in holiness. And God wants us to continue to maintain the joy that is found in salvation. You see this word holiness, um, holy, occurs there three, 14, uh, sorry, three times in verse 14. And Paul wants us to understand that that's a key word in this whole letter. 
He began the letter in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, to those who are holy. He's writing a letter to those who are holy. Chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Chapter 6, verse 11. For such were some of you but you have been washed and are sanctified, holy. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, Paul wants to make it very clear that you are holy and your marriage is intended to be a place of holiness and it's a place where you as a spouse can lead your wife or your husband towards greater holiness. And the byproduct is that you could have children who are walking in holiness with and towards Christ. So Jesus has something for us here in this passage. Jesus wants us to recognize that As married couples, we ought to view our marriage bed as a holy place, a place for sanctification. Not only a place for physical renewal, but for spiritual renewal. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual immoral and adulterous. So we ought to hold the marriage bed holy. And there is holy work that's done in the marriage bed. And the byproduct of that is holiness of children for God's glory and God's honor. Let me conclude by reading um, a portion of Matt Chandler's book, The Mingling of Souls. He says, God has seen our unloveliness, a deep brokenness and rebellion in our hearts, And instead of withdrawing, he pursues us to the beautiful end. He made an eternal covenant to sinners because of his great love for us. And because grace is true, you can face the world with all its dangers and troubles, knowing you have been established forever as blameless by the Holy Groom, Jesus Christ. So for those of us who are single, pursue your holy groom, Jesus. May you contain, maintain self-control and the power of the Holy Spirit as your bodies are holy temples of the Lord. For those of us who are married, may we maintain holiness and love and serve our spouse. For those of us who are the gift of children, may we live in such a way that leads a path for them in holiness, that they might take hold of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you love us, you care for us. We're thankful, Lord, that you created us as sexual beings and you satisfy all our longings in you. Give us a greater view of who you are in order that we might continue to contend for the faith, for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.